the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, locked and loaded for the Wednesday, January 26th edition of Lifeline. How are you today? Halfway through the week and, my golly, almost entirely through the first month of the new year. Amazing how uh, how time flies. They say that the older you get, the faster it goes. So in your 20s, it goes at 20 miles an hour. 30s, it goes at 30 miles an hour. There are some of us that are breaking the speed limit at this point and ought to be pulled over and given a ticket. <laughs> but I digress. Let's, uh, let's get down to cases because there's a lot to talk about tonight. Um, we're going to get an update for you on uh, what some are suggesting is the finalization of the ratification of the 28th Amendment. You say, Craig, the 28th Amendment. Wait, there's only 27 amendments. What, what are you talking about? Well, um, some people believe that uh, the Equal Rights Amendment has had the final state um, as of uh, late last year, Virginia, to ratify it. There's a lot of math that's really off here, and we're going to get to the details when Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee joins us later on in tonight's program. Also, Wen Fa, attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, is going to update us on a um, a court a decision or a, a case rather that the Supreme Court um, has now agreed to pick up that zeroes in on a really bizarre set of regulations uh, sort of in the uh, affirmative action arena uh, that has been so discriminatory towards certain groups. It's, it's I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. And it includes such well-known institutes of higher learning as the University of North Carolina and Harvard. Give you one hint. It's not the group that you might think it is. So we'll get to details when Wen Fa joins us later on in this program. I want to begin, though, with a glimpse into, you know, this, of course, January, Sanctity of Human Life Month. Uh, We've just marked the 48th anniversary of Roe v. Wade this past Saturday on the 22nd, narrowing in on what we hope will be a final Supreme Court decision before mid-year that will um, put the final nail in the proverbial legal coffin of Roe v. Wade. And uh, so while we're enthusiastically looking forward to a positive outcome in that case, California is just doing everything it can to be as as distinct <laughs> as we can, which typically means distinct as in radical. And in this case, not only creating California as a so-called sanctuary state for abortion, but now in the form of a new bill being considered by the California Assembly wanting to make all abortions 
whether uh, you, you, you're, you're a resident of the state or not, all abortions uh, would be absolutely free and, worse yet, compel insurance companies to cover the cost of those abortions, no deductible, no copay at all. Makes no sense. Let's get some insights. Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council, joins us with a deeper insight into Senate Bill 245. I would start by saying, Jonathan, welcome. And are they crazy? But I already know the answer to that question. Well, Craig, always good to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. Yeah, it is. uh, I'm with you. Uh, Just when you think that the legislature can't go farther, they can't think lower, they can't come up with another new way to plumb the depths of depravity and not only separate uh, Californians from their money, but waste that money in the worst way possible. Uh, Just when you think none of those things could happen, along comes a bill like SB 245. And we've been tracking this on our website, CaliforniaFamily.org, since last year. We have an action center there that people can go to to get involved and find more ways to engage. But we, we had a brief reprieve last year. This was stalled actually in the Assembly Appropriations Committee. And we, we had a, a minor victory. We were grateful because the day after our, our March for Life there at the Capitol in California was when it was tabled for the year. So we said, well, thank you, Lord. That's an answer to prayer, at least, at least for now. All of these abortions are not going to be free, and at least for now, every Californian is not going to be forced to subsidize free abortions, not only by their taxes, but also with their health insurance premiums. And yet, like you said, Craig, we saw they are refusing to give up on this. The author is continuing their push to make this bill a reality. They're trying to trying to force every insurance company, again, not only to cover abortion, that's already the law, tragically, because of a a decision from the Department of Managed Health Care. But under this bill, as as you said, I mean, you did a perfect job of uh, recapping it, every abortion in the state of California, no deductibles, no co-pays. And if you think the insurance companies are just going to take that lying down and say, okay, well, I guess, I guess out of the goodness of our heart, out of the benevolence to our uh, shareholders, or, you know, we'll, we'll offer a, a pay cut to our CEOs. No, this is going to be passed along directly to every citizen in the state who has a private health insurance plan. It's going to increase premiums specifically for the purpose of increasing and easing the numbers of abortions. And, of course, those premiums, uh, in large part, are paid by employers in the state of California uh, who may absorb the additional cost and or share part of that with the employees, the individual insured folks. And, you know, I I, I get the the... The pain of an unplanned pregnancy and all that attends to it and the pressures that come sometimes from a societal standpoint, sometimes from within the family, oftentimes there's, you know, conflicts related to life choices, career choices, things of this sort. I understand all that. What I don't understand is that suddenly that becomes a burden, a responsibility that the general public um, has to be responsible for. We, even if we have solid moral grounds to find abortion abhorrent and not wishing to participate in the funding in any form or fashion whatsoever, are nevertheless forced, apparently, here in California to do so. And I got to wonder the timing on this. As you indicate, it seemed to kind of, uh, you know, 
putting this on the back burner all of a sudden, just as we get indications that the Supreme Court will likely by mid-year allow Texas and Mississippi to stand, uh, a major threat to the abortion industry, and you've got to believe the folks at Planned Parenthood are panicking and are probably looking at states like California as almost uh, economic safe havens, meaning that, well, if you can't get an abortion anywhere else in the country, welcome to California. Not only will they provide them, they'll even pay for them. It's amazing. That's, a, that's absolutely right, Craig. And again, we if you go to our website, CaliforniaFamily.org, we, we have been kind of all over this entire issue, specifically Governor Newsom's newly created Future of Abortion Council. We did a, a special webcast with some state and national leaders back in December and you're you're totally right. Governor Newsom said not only a safe haven, he even used the word sanctuary. He wants California to be a sanctuary for abortion. And that includes passing this bill, SB 245. But, Craig, just last week we also saw the California Women's Legislative Caucus, uh, or I should say um, one part of the Legislative Women's Caucus, namely all the Democrats, none of the Republican women. But the Democrat women from the California Legislative Women's Caucus held a press conference last week in which they introduced an entire slew of new pro-abortion proposals. Uh, number one, they resurrected and, and brought to the forefront this bill, SB 245. But they also, Craig, uh, talked about the fact that they want to increase funding to pay for people to fly from out of state to come to California and get abortions. Craig, they also talked about something that uh, I know you've probably talked about on your show before, and, and we hear from economic perspectives, They talked about the need for student loan forgiveness, but they didn't talk about it for everybody. They didn't talk about it for people who are uh, going to be doctors and going to be nurses. They didn't talk about it for people who are going to be serving in other types of roles. They only have very specific loan forgiveness in mind. They actually want to incentivize you. If you become an abortionist, then you can get tens of thousands of dollars of your student loans forgiven. But not, again, not if you're going to be helping and healing patients, only if you are committed to providing abortions here in the state of California. Wow. You know, we, we almost want to change the uh, the state flag from the uh, the California brown grizzly to the skull and crossbones. I mean, we, we, we seem to almost be heading in that uh uh, in that direction. Uh, tell me this, Jonathan, in terms of the current status of SB 25, it had been put on the back burner. Now it looks like they're going to want to tr- fast track it here uh, as we uh, get into the new year. What's the timetable on this? And most importantly, what do we as as pro-life folks, as concerned taxpayers and citizens, what should we be doing to help combat this thing and, and see it fail? Well, the current status is it has passed. Last year it passed out of its House of Origin in the Senate. It made its way over to the Assembly, and that's where it was held over. But now that it's out of the Appropriations Committee, it could pass, it could be read on the floor of the Assembly uh, basically at any time. Uh, To be honest, Craig, I I was half expecting that they were going to try to pass it last week or maybe even this week uh, surrounding the Roe v. Wade anniversary. So, I I am thinking that it is time now. Call your assembly member. Email your assembly member. Again, if you need help finding who that is, go to our website, CaliforniaFamily.org, and you can click on our Action Center. It's available right there either in the top bar or scroll down to the bottom and click on the Action Center at CaliforniaFamily.org. And that will connect you with whoever your elected representative is. 
Uh, we will allow you to send them a message. Uh, you can look up and give them a phone call. You can, of course, if you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anything like that, you can, of course, send them a message or post on their page. But I would also encourage everybody really just to pray, because just being honest, the legislative numbers are bad for pro-lifers. There is a, a supermajority of aggressively pro-abortion candidates and legislators that are in both the Senate and the Assembly. And, you know, the, the line that I've used with people is this needs to be kind of our Jonah moment, that you, you look and pray and you share the gospel and you, you beg and plead on behalf of these unborn children. Um, and as you said, Craig, I, I think this is such a potential moment for hope on the flip side. I was, I was in Washington, D.C. just last week. That's actually the latest blog post up on our website at California Family Council, a video update from myself and coworker Greg Burt talking about the huge, the huge opportunity, the hope that pro-lifers around the country had. When we were there in D.C., hundreds of thousands of young people, families, children, black, white, uh, you know, across the political spectrum, all marching for life. And I think in California we need to remember that even in the face of horrible legislation like this, uh, we are on the right side of history, and it may take California a while longer to get there, but we should never give up and never waver in our commitment. To well, and I, and I think folks also need to be mindful that outside of what happens in D.C., the biggest state-level pro-life event in the country is the March for Life West Coast that happens in, of all places, San Francisco, uh, which I think not only shows God's sense of humor, number one, but number two, that there is a bigger contingency of pro-life folks in this state than perhaps Sacramento recognizes or realizes. And so, you know, we need to be proactive about this. As Jonathan mentions, the easiest way is just to hop online to californiafamily.org, go to the Action Center, give you all the details on how to contact uh, both the committee chair as well as the vice chair and uh, the senator in your area. And it's easy. You can shoot them, uh, shoot them an easy email and say, I'm urging you to please vote against Sen- Senate Bill 245, and I'll be watching your vote. Uh, if you choose to call them, uh, some people say, well, I don't want to call. I don't want to get into an argument. That won't happen. You'll talk to a staff member. You just simply say, I have a message to convey to the senator. Please let the senator know that I am strongly urging his or her no vote on SB 245. My name is, and I'll be watching his vote. And that's all you need to do. And it's as easy as pie. And so if you have a sense of you know being intimidated by calling, there's no reason to be. And so I want to really urge you to, uh, to be involved in, uh, in having your voice counted. Uh, this is being considered Again, um, maybe potentially even coming up to a vote uh, in the next 30 days. So the sooner you act, the better. Online, more information about Senate Bill 245 by going to californiafamily.org. Click on the Action Center. Again, that's at californiafamily.org. Thanks to Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council, for that update. 520. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Supreme Court has now granted the opportunity for a case to be heard, probably be sometime next year before it moves on to a uh, decision. 
Um, and, and it goes around a, a theme that we've been somewhat familiar with in the news in recent months. You're aware that there have been wealthy Americans manipulating the entrance process by lying on applications, bribing school personnel, or offering huge grants and endowments in exchange for favorable admissions for their sons and daughters who may otherwise not even have a snowman's chance, as the saying goes, at admissions because, frankly, their scholastic performance just isn't up to par. Well, kind of companion to that notion of manipulating admissions, a lawsuit in federal court has been filed accusing 16 of the nation's leading private universities and colleges of conspiring to reduce the financial aid they award to students admitted through a price-fixing cartel. Of course, the accused universities have denied wrongdoing. What else would you expect? Well, now, earlier this week, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court has granted students for fair admissions the opportunity to have their case heard. This is regarding um, accusations against both Harvard and the University of North Carolina. We get more details now on this scheme. Wen Fa, attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, joins us. Counselor, thanks so much. We appreciate you uh, carving some time out for us today. I understand that basically they're 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 using the manipulation of admission standards. Uh, I guess their form of of, of so-called uh, affirmative action, but it's having a, <laughs> having a, a result on it that I think nobody would expect in terms of the kind of actual discrimination that it's all ultimately placing on folks? Well, I, I think the result is expected. So what Harvard and UNC are doing in particular is that they are considering a race, and they are using uh, race as a factor in deciding who to admit and who to reject uh, when considering admissions to their universities. And the Students for Fair Admissions have made a very persuasive case that this violates uh, not just the constitutional right to equal protection, but also the statutory right, uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And what both of those provisions prohibit is discrimination on the basis of race. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court in the 2003 decision called Gruder versus Bollinger actually endorsed uh, the use of race in college admissions. But this, these two cases provide the Supreme Court a chance to revisit that decision and to overturn that decision and to say once and for all that racial discrimination is just as wrong in college admissions as it is anywhere else. Part of the, the language in the brief presented to the court that just sent shivers up my spine was the fact that they were using such unbelievably horrific criteria to gauge eligibility for admissions, including likability, courage, and kindness. <laughs> I don't even know how you go about measuring any of those. But the bigger question in my mind, when is what in the world does that have to do with a student's scholastic performance and potential as it relates to admissions? Why is, is race or likability or kindness a factor at all? I thought this was supposed to be based on we give opportunities for the best and the brightest. We don't look at race, we don't look at income, we don't consider any of that stuff, but apparently that's not the case with Harvard and uh, and uh, University of North Carolina. It certainly should be that way, but what Harvard is doing is using the personal scores that you just mentioned uh, as a way to discriminate against Asian American students and racially balance their class. Asian American students in general 
have higher uh, uh, higher uh, academic scores. They have higher extracurricular scores. Uh, so these personal ratings, such as likable, uh, likability, kindness, and so forth, are used so that Harvard can achieve its preferred racial balance. And I think that just goes to show that uh, racial preferences and affirmative action programs like these really lead to some very crude and demeaning stereotypes against students, uh, all applicants, uh, to the university. And that's just another reason why they're wrong and should be unconstitutional. Should Congress look at something like this? I mean, obviously, the, the, the more short-term relief is going to be this case going before the Supreme Court. But I'm, I'm wondering, to a broader degree, should Congress create legislation that says, look, when it comes to admissions, um, before the admissions committee, um, you can provide information about the students' past scholastic history, their SAT scores, all of the performance-related criteria. But in terms of other information, like even providing surnames, shouldn't every applicant be assigned a number and just say, that's it, you have no idea who this person is, what their background is, where they come from, so that you, you, you engage in a decision regarding uh, admissions solely on the merits and not based on either racial bias before, for, or against any one group? It should certainly be based on the merits. And I would argue that Congress actually has already addressed this issue with Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Congress says that if you're a university and you accept federal funding like Harvard and UNC do, uh, you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court has interpreted that provision to allow some form of racial discrimination to achieve some amorphous interest in diversity in a very closely divided decision uh, in 2003 called Grutter versus Bollinger. But as I mentioned earlier, this, these cases present the court with an opportunity to correct that grievously wrong decision and to say that racial discrimination is just as wrong in college admissions as it is anywhere else. It, it just uh, it continues to astonish me that America can have some of the best colleges and universities anywhere on planet Earth and yet have some of the most awkward admissions policies. And, of course, w when it comes to the barriers that we put in place in relationship to uh, to tuitions, uh, I mean, it, it's the, the, the inflation rate when it comes to education, I, I, other than health care, I don't think there's any one sector of the economy that has been so far out of control in terms of, of uh, how, how fast cost has risen as education. And it's just, I, th I think it's shameful because we used to produce the best and brightest coming out of the best schools anywhere on the planet, but it just seems as if we can't get out of our own way. Well, I think it should be, colleges should be like anything else. It should be about increasing opportunity for all. It should about be about giving every individual the opportunity to thrive. And I think that's one of the other things that's so pernicious about racial preferences is that these academic metrics, although they are not predictive for everybody, they do generally have uh, predictive power about how a student is going to do at any particular school. So you hear stories of students getting in with large preferences, including large racial preferences, that either do not succeed and end up dropping out, or they are being forced and funneled into a major uh, that does not fit with their career aspirations. 
uh, just because it, the coursework is easier. I think that's wrong. I think that's not something that we should be striving for. What we should be striving for is allowing every individual the opportunity to achieve his or her goals. Absolutely. And and to somehow either uh, be manipulating the entrance bar to make it more difficult for some and easier for others, you know, the the, the biggest um, perhaps roadblock historically and, and maybe logically uh, it could be the ability to pay, in which case then I think the country needs to do a far better job at, at providing loans or maybe saying, look, we're going we're gonna to take a portion of what we set aside in the defense budget and we're going to put that toward higher education so that uh, there's no excuse for any young person who has the desire and the ability that they be able to go to the school that they choose, the one that's going to be best for the kind of career and uh, direction in life that they wish to to undertake. And uh, clearly we've got a long way to go in resolving some of these issues and uh, and certainly addressing the issue of, of <laughs> trying to use race to either keep people in or, 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 or push them out uh, it needs to be addressed. I indicated that likely this will be heard in not this current um, court session, but in the next one. Is that accurate? Yeah, so we expect that this case will be argued before the Supreme Court in October, and a decision will be handed down uh, June of 2023. Understood. All right. Well, we appreciate you uh, when keeping us surprised of what's going on here, and folks can continue to follow this case as it progresses through the court um, on PacificLegal.org. That's PacificLegal.org. Our thanks to Wen Fa, attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, for that update. 533 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you know, amazingly, we're almost through the first month of the new year, and yet a lot of folks feel as if we're still stuck <laughs> in 2020. You get that sense? <laughs> we we feel as if we've, we've repeated uh, 2020 and 2021, and here at the start, month in, as I say, into 2022. And I, there's a lingering feeling. A lot of this is, you know, uh, what did Yogi Berra say? Deja vu all over again. Uh, if you have been feeling likewise, as I suggest, you're certainly not alone. But then it begs the question, how do we get unstuck from the feelings of the last year and uh, be able to move on from the past and to be able to look forward and not just look forward, but look forward with a sense of more positive anticipation? Offering some insights from a spiritual dimension is Don Damon. Don is the founder of Braveheart mentor coaching. She is an award-winning author and uh, founding pastor of a church who recently retired from that, but she is busy doing many other things. And Pastor Dawn, great to have you back on the program. Hey, Craig, it's so wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me on. And you're right, it's time to get unstuck. For sure. You know, winter season, now this is more so back in your part of the country than out here in California, but yeah. winter season, snow, rain, sleet, lots of mud. A lot of folks here, even in our own state, know what it's like to get the car stuck in a rut and you just feel as if, boy, I got to call the AAA folks to get me pulled out of this. <laughs> and maybe it's easier when your vehicle gets stuck. So I guess the big question we're all wondering is if we feel like we're stuck in life particularly in the wake of the last two years, uh, what towing company did we call to get unstuck from that? 
Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Let's see. God's phone number is Jeremiah 33.3, right? 333, call to me and I will hear, says God. But I think the best way to get unstuck, the first thing that we have to do is be willing to dream again. And I really feel like that's what happened for so many of us. We might have had a a great routine. We had hopes. We had dreams. We were starting out strong in this new, you know, 2020. And then COVID hit. And it seems like we just, everything came crashing down. And we have not allowed ourselves to dream again. And the Bible is so clear. Without a vision, people perish. We've got to get a vision for our future. What's the future you look like in one year, two years, three years, five years? Because like I said last time, in five years, you are going to arrive. We just don't know where. Get that vision. Get a picture. Get a purpose. Why am I here? Why am I living this life? And put that vision in front of you everywhere and believe God will fulfill it. Now, typically, and I don't want to rub salt in the wound of folks that say, oh, Craig, I did this and I've already broken all of them. But typically, the beginning of a new year, we do resolutions or we we set uh, uh, some goals at the start of the year as to what we'd like to do, things that we'd like to change. And oddly enough, for most of us, just a scant few weeks in and already that we, we, we have fallen on disappointing times. Are we looking at this wrong, Don, in your opinion, in terms of trying to do resolutions at the new year or, or quote-unquote, set goals that we wind up not reaching very soon? Well, I I think there's a big difference between a resolution and a goal. Um, I think resolutions, I used to write resolutions all the time, and it was lose weight, pray more, read more, save more money. See, very vague, and vague Vague goals, vague resolutions produce vague results. So I've learned to be very specific. I And I put my goals in the present tense right now so that my brain accepts it, believes it, and starts moving towards it. So I weigh my ideal weight. Maybe let's choose 138. I weigh 138, my ideal weight, and I am strong. I have a number one New York Times best-selling book. Whatever the, whatever the resolution is, I try to move it into a goal that has a deadline. And then those goals, maybe I'll give 7 to 10 goals. Let's just choose 7 to 10. Any more than that, we don't have enough focus. Any less than that, you know, we're not dreaming big enough. But I take my top four or five goals, and then I reverse engineer them. What are the things that I have to do to work towards making that a reality. Because I think resolutions are so vague and so are goals without deadlines. They just feel like something that we hope, you know, somehow is going to happen for us or to us, but we've got a part in that. And so that is, I think, where we go wrong. And I wonder, too, Dawn, if sometimes we, we, with good intention, establish and set goals and then end up how should I say this, torpedoing or sabotaging our ability to achieve those goals, because while they might be wonderful and altruistic and and well-meaning, if we don't change our habits, sometimes those bad habits can get in the way of achieving those goals, can't they? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think it's James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits. He says, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall 
to the level of our systems or habits. And so habits are the safety net for us. If we've got bad habits, we're in trouble. But if we can craft some powerful habits, so when the days that my my goals are pulling me in that altruistic way that you talk about, at least at the very least, I'm only falling to the level of some really powerful good habits. For example, a habit might be, and you you, you bundle your habits, but a habit might be, um, when I brush my teeth at night, the next thing I do is read a chapter in my book. So. If we have a goal of reading 12 books, but we don't have a habit, then we'll kick that can down the street and say, yeah, I'm going to read, I'm going to read tomorrow. I'm not good at night or any other rationalization our brain may come up with. (laughs) Well, and I wonder if, too, sometimes we, we get overly zealous in the nature or the size of the goals that we set or the kind of habits that we want to change and, and as a result set almost uh, unrealistic uh, expectations, and then the moment that we fail to meet them. I mean, let's say, for example, re- reading 12 books. Okay, so I'm going to read a book a month, and so I have to read, you know, take the average book, uh, 300 pages, uh, you know, 75 pages a week mm-hmm. to get into the three 300 pages in the month. And if at the end of the first week I've only read four pages, I think sometimes it's so easy to just have that sense of being overwhelmed that suddenly we give in, we give up, because we feel as if, well, I've already failed at my goal this early on, so why even bother? Does that become a major stumbling block to setting unrealistic goals or having unrealistic expectations of ourselves too big or too early? Right, sure. So I think it's Peter Drucker who gave us the original SMART goals, perhaps, that we should. We do need to set goals that are smart so the the smart smart goals tell us that they have to be realistic they have to be something that is time bound something that's achievable something that's measurable but also i think craig that we have a habit of failing we're we've given ourselves too much permission to say oh well i don't have to do that today i'll do it tomorrow If I broke the amount of promises with my husband that I break to myself, I wouldn't be in a relationship with me. (laughs) We have to create a habit of not breaking promises to me or not failing to follow through with my commitment. We've got to gain some discipline and have a habit of, I'm going to follow through with what I said. So, yeah, it's a both-and world. Let's Let's set smart goals, but at the same time, let's also create some discipline and some commitment that says, I'm going to stick with this and I'm not going to fall into a habit of always failing. A final question for you tonight, Dawn. Is it helpful to set, uh, how should we phrase this, major and minor goals? In other words, to, to say that I want to do X five years from now, well, over such a lengthy period of time, you know, it, it's difficult perhaps to be able to measure the sense of momentum as opposed to saying, by next Friday, I want to, and, and I'm wondering if, you know, the old adage, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, if it helps to sometimes mm-hmm. break these down into smaller increments so that it's easier for us to measure a sense of success and, and therefore gain more encouragement, more momentum, more momentum along the way? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you nailed it, just breaking it down into um, bite-sized increments. For me, I have a one-year goal, a three-year goal, and a five-year goal. 
And when I look at my goals, I think in terms of, again, is this goal very specific? Is it measurable? Is it attainable or achievable? And is it time-bound? Um, if reasonable and time-bound, if the goal isn't big enough, it doesn't motivate me. But if it's too big, yeah, you're right, then it discourages me. So then I say, I think this is something that I'm going to do in the next two years, and I put that on next year's vision board, all the while still breaking it down into small bite-sized things and habits that support me going that direction. But I'll say this, because we talked at the top of the hour about being stuck, and if someone is stuck, the, the greatest thing you can do is become very intentional. It's great to have a plan. Let's start with a vision. Let's get a plan. Break it down into bite-sized goals. Yes, make powerful habits around it. Then get a coach or a friend or someone, not your spouse, <laughs> someone who can hold you accountable to that because accountability is a big reason why if we don't have it, we'll lapse. Then if we lapse, Day after day after day, now we have a habit of failing. Now we've had a relapse, and that's called being stuck. And you know, some some goals and habits are are clear cut and and tangible. Others more intangible. But I find if you write them down, uh, not only does it help to to kind of imprint that in your mind and heart in terms of what you're working towards, but it serves as a reminder. And so you've got that to go back and look on and, and be able to mark your progress along the way. And and oftentimes getting that clear sense of or, or of direction can be very helpful too. Don Damon, founder of Braveheart Mentor Coaching, information available on the web at Don Damon, D-A-W-N-D-A-M-O-N, Don Damon. Dot com. Don, we appreciate the update. We'll get a chance to visit with you again next week. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, this is a, a fine how do you do, and it may, may be time for a little bit of a math lesson because there have been some out there pronouncing victory related to the Equal Rights Amendment, and you say victory, Craig, what are you talking about? Didn't that go down in defeat because the failure to reach the total number of states necessary to ratify years ago? Oh, it certainly did, even though Congress at one point um, extended the date. And five of the original states that voted to ratify this amendment rescinded their vote. So how can some be celebrating the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment? Well, let's get some insights now. Brian Johnston joins us, author of the best-selling book, The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. Brian is the host of Life Matters, a program heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX, and also serves as the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Now, Brian, this this is a moment where I imagine if Phyllis Schlafly is listening to us from heaven, is probably laughing her head off thinking, what do you mean the Equal Rights Amendment finally was was passed into law? What are we talking about here? Exactly. And and what's stunning, we've known this for a long time, and it was special thanks to Phyllis Lafley, but all along, the Equal Rights Amendment was designed to sneak abortion into the Constitution because it would be now be a constitutional amendment. So it would be in the Constitution. Roe v. Wade 
does not represent anything in the Constitution. It's a very strange interpretation, as many now know, a very strange adventure in meandering word salad. But Roe v. Wade assumes that there is an implied right to privacy, and from this this implied, actually what Blackman says, from the shadow, the penumbra of the right to privacy, well, that's why there's right to an abortion. And it looks like that ridiculous decision is about to come to an end. But the ERA is explicit, because the, the ERA anything that affects a woman is basically uh, denying her her rights because she's a woman. And that's been interpreted to me, and it was at the time, and Phyllis Schlafly saw that, and many of us others, that, well, you're really trying to get to abortion here. And at that time, they denied it. Subsequently, if you, uh, you very well pointed out, it's been revealed that's the entirety of the purpose of this. And now, tomorrow, the pro-abortion movement is declaring that on September 27th, it'll be official. The ERA will become law. And they're asking that this administration simply proclaim it. Now, I predict this, because tomorrow's coming pretty quick. That's going to be hard for the administration to do. They just might do it, though. We know that making stuff up and saying it's true has become a regular thing, not only with the media, but particularly with this particular party that we're looking at. And so they just might try that, but what I think will happen is there'll be more litigation, but this time the entire administration of this administration plus the existing Senate and Congress will all join together, the three different branches are going to join together, and they're going to say, nope, we proclaim it did pass, this is official, all these waivers were passed, and so you can actually change the Constitution by fiat. It doesn't have to follow the rules. And so you're going to hear more about this because this is a desperate moment for them. It's also why they put up today Breyer, because they know the Senate will appoint, will confirm any appointee right now of this administration. But the Senate is is likely to change in the fall. And they won't get any appointee out if the Senate itself changes. So they're acting desperately because they want to make sure they can cement Roe v. Wade's implied authority of unlimited abortion. So, so it almost so sounds like that this is yeah. a, a, a political tactic here, that they see the prevailing winds in the Supreme Court blowing in the wrong direction for the continuance of Roe v. Wade, as we've discussed uh, at great length on this program. So this is kind of the, the Hill Mary pass, and it sounds like they think that they can just, you know, proclaim it, and so it is, in which case I'd like to say to all listening, I'm only 25 years old, I only weigh 150 pounds, and I'm spitting image of Clark Gable. Now, none of that is true, <laughs> but I proclaimed it, so therefore it must be true. <laughs> you know, what, what's funny about this is there have been an extension by Congress, and they have a right to do so, 
Congress had extended from the original deadline of ratification another seven years, which it took us to June of 1982 to obtain all 38 states. That did not happen. And now they think 40 years after the fact, because apparently Virginia came in in 2020, Illinois in 2018, and Nevada in 2017, well after the deadline that they're going to declare this thing as having been ratified. And again, completely ignoring the fact that while three new states might have signed on, five others rescinded their ratification. I mean, this just doesn't make sense at any level whatsoever. Is this, at the end of the day, in your opinion, Brian, just a Hail Mary pass because they see where the prevailing winds are blowing related to Roe v. Wade? It really is. They're dependent, utterly dependent on a naive public that will believe the media. The media will pound this home and expect you to believe it because, well, if you don't, you hate women. There's nothing wrong with women having equal rights. How backwards could you be? So they use simplistic language. They misrepresent what's really at stake. But they're dependent on a controlling media that pounds home their story, their message, their meme. And we're probably going to hear more about this because it's not going to end tomorrow. It really, it'll, it'll hit the fan, but it's, it's incredibly dishonest. But they're doing it. Well, you know, watch this space for more details, as they say. It, it you know, it, it shows the level of desperation here. And you better believe that um, organizations like Planned Parenthood are helping to sort of uh, fuel this behind the scenes because they, too, I think, see the handwriting on the wall, and uh, and, it, and it's tragic. But you know, there was a deadline that was established. Um, the the Constitution is silent in terms of the timing, but Congress is not. And Congress had established a deadline. They moved the deadline again. It got reset to June of 1982. Please note that was 40, nearly 40 years ago. Time has passed. It's over with. Let's move on. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. His program, Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. He goes into these topics and more in much more depth, so we invite you to tune in for that. Support and encourage the program. And, of course, you can get more information on how to do so by going to CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Our thanks to Brian Johnston for that update. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.